0: Hey, Chris. Can you hear me? Again? I can. How good. are you? I will. How about uh, you?
1: Uh, I'm good. Thank you. So I assume with the uh, Supreme Court session complete, that means nothing but full-on summer vacation for a guy like you, right?
0: Would that it were so. <laughs> soon, soon enough, I'll get the hell out of here. Good. Although this, this, you know, this census case keeps lingering. So I've heard.
1: <laughs> so I've read. Yeah. They're not going to let that one die, I don't think.
0: Seems that way. Yeah.
1: So I am ready to go if you are in three, two, one. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by Political Wire. What's the best way to stay on top of the important political news? Have my friend Tegan Goddard do it for you. Tegan updates Political Wire what seems like 24-7, but did you know he's got a membership program that offers readers exclusive analysis, a trending news aggregator, and no advertising on the site? And for my podcast listeners, Tegan's got a special friends-only offer, 20% off an annual subscription. Just go to politicalwire.com slash chris for your discount, and now to the podcast. It was the Supreme Court session Democrats feared and Republicans had waited a generation for, a solidly conservative 5-4 majority. It took the Merrick Garland block, I know, that's a generous word, and Brett Kavanaugh hearings to get here, and now that first session is complete. So how'd it go? Were the fears and hopes realized? That's what I asked Adam Liptak, who watches, studies and explains the Supreme Court about as closely and insightfully as anyone in the world. Liptak of course covers the Supreme Court for the New York Times and writes sidebar, a column on legal developments. His background is fascinating and perfect for the role, a decades-long blend of journalism and law at the highest levels. Liptak first joined the Times after college as a copyboy in 1984 and then during law school, Did I mention that was at Yale? He worked as a summer clerk in the New York Times Company's legal department. After graduating, Liptak worked at a New York City law firm as a litigation associate specializing in First Amendment matters. Four years later, he rejoined the Times legal team and then, in 2002, officially joined their news staff. Finally, because obviously that's not enough... Liptak has also taught courses on the Supreme Court and the First Amendment at several law schools, including his alma mater and the University of Chicago. As you'll hear in Adam's excellent discussion for all of this session's surprise alliances and shifting balance, it may turn out to be an important prelude that sets up a supreme bonanza. A 2020 election year session that confronts some of our most contentious issues. Immigration, the Second Amendment, discrimination, and possibly abortion, as well as health care and the Affordable Care Act. But before we begin, two items. One, have you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com? It brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, access to free books, and more. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Second, thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Several more of you did, and especially with the podcast name change, it makes a big difference. So, if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Adam Liptak. Adam, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time.
0: It's great to be here, Chris.
1: The first session with two Trump justices on the court is complete. Um, Let's start with the biggest picture. Did we see the right word shift that Trump promised and liberals feared? How would you characterize the state of the Supreme Court?
0: I think it's moved modestly to the right. Uh, There's a new center of gravity on the court uh, where for more than a decade, and in some ways for almost 30 years, Justice Anthony Kennedy was uh, at the center of the court, who was a moderate conservative, but frequently swung left on issues like gay rights and abortion and affirmative action. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts is the ideological center of the court. And he's substantially to the right of uh, Justice Kennedy. But as this term demonstrated, uh, he's cautiously conservative. He wants to move the court to the right, but not at breakneck speed. And so he is trying to manage um his allies on the right uh trying to tap the gas pedal uh, tap the tap the brakes a little bit uh and not lurch to the right but uh but move methodically to the right
1: yeah i've heard you discuss what seems to be robert's inner balancing act between on the one hand the responsibility he feels as chief justice and keeper of the flame versus um, his conservative leanings and judicial sensibility, his upbringing. Um, I think you've described it as, as, as his incrementalism. Um, do do you see, based on the, the totality of what we know, and you just started to describe it, but do you see one side of that balance weighing more heavily, or, or did you see, now that the session is fully complete, um, did you see him really trying to uh, work that balance?
0: Uh, I think the conflicting impulses came fully into view, stark view on the last day of the term when the court released its two biggest cases. Yeah. One of them was a big five 4 conservative victory that said that claims of partisan gerrymandering uh, where state lawmakers draw election districts to favor their own parties. Uh, he said those claims cannot be brought in federal court. That 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 is a political question that will be decided by state legislatures. And that was uh, very good for Republicans who control uh, many state houses around the nation. So that was a solidly conservative move by the chief justice, which you might expect, given that he's a product of the conservative legal movement on the same day. In the census case, uh, he joins the four liberals, uh, at least tentatively to say that the Trump administration had not come forward with a reasonable explanation for why it wanted to add a citizenship question to the census. And that was, if not a solid, solid liberal victory, because it may still come undone. It was a surprise vote, and it showed him, I think, wanting the court not to appear to be a political institution and not to blindly accept everything the Trump administration puts before it.
1: And you've even said previously, I think, and I'm wondering if you still feel it's true that I think it was you, in fact, and if it wasn't, obviously you'll you'll correct me. That you even wonder if perhaps he might be voting differently on various issues and various cases if he weren't the chief justice, if he didn't have that side of the the balance weighing on him. Do do you? Do, what I think that was part of your analysis.
0: I've said that before. I believe it. And I think the thought experiment is this, Chris. He was initially nominated to the court uh, by President George W. Bush to replace Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And had that gone through, he would have been an associate justice. And my hypothesis is we'll never be able to prove this, but that he would have had a more conservative voting record if he was just one vote out of nine than what happened in the end, which is Chief Justice uh, William Rehnquist died. President Bush changed the nomination from the uh, Associate Justice O'Connor seat to the Chief Justice Rehnquist seat. And I think that brought with it for Chief Justice Roberts a whole different uh, and additional set of responsibilities. And he does view himself as the custodian of the Supreme Court's prestige, authority, legitimacy. And that may, in some cases, influence his legal analysis and his votes.
1: And you mentioned a moment ago, and I wanted to ask you about it a little bit later, the, the ongoing census uh, discussion. I mean, that was, that was decided. There was a vote uh, last day of the court, as you noted. Um, but it's uh, an issue that has new life and, and doesn't seem to be willing to die just yet. Um, but before we, we get to that, which is kind of more current and, and forward looking, um, a little bit more on, on your take on the court. Um, in in one of your post session analysis pieces you outlined how this session showed we might not have um just one swing vote that many court watchers thought that that swing vote would be Roberts as you just mentioned but that we might have two with Kavanaugh and possibly i don't know if you were fully saying this but possibly even three um with Kagan um the alliances w- why were the alliances so hard to predict with this court uh
0: we had Not a few instances where the courts for liberals voting together managed to attract uh, one of the conservative justices to form a five to four majority. That came as a surprise to me. One of those cases was the the census case, uh, but they picked up uh, Kavanaugh's vote in a big antitrust case. They picked up Justice Gorsuch's vote, who is an authentically conservative justice, but on some issues, notably criminals rights. Uh, Criminal defendants rights and the rights of Indian tribes. He swung left four times. So four times he formed a majority in a 5-4 case by joining the liberals. So the court, I think, to its credit, was not wholly predictable and aligned itself in a whole bunch of ways. And uh, therefore, the dire predictions uh, after the Kavanaugh hearings that this is the end of the Supreme Court, as we know it, have not come true again it's the center of gravity has shifted to the right. The decisions on the whole were a little more conservative. Justice Kagan, as you noted, one of the liberals has voted, uh, more to the center and the right, I think to keep her hand in play in strategic ways. And so there were shifting alliances all through the court. And that's, you know, a function of trying to get a sense of each other in this new dynamic, uh, probably a sense among some of the justices that it does the court credit not to appear to be consistently political five, four, uh, five conservatives outvoting the four liberals. Uh, and it's partly because Justice Kavanaugh has just arrived on the scene. He's getting his bearings. He's voting very often with the chief. He was in the majority more than any other justice. And he voted uh, quite infrequently with uh, the other Trump appointee, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, so we're, we, we're in the midst of a court in transition that probably won't come into focus, you know, for a term or two or three or four.
1: And, and what's the why? I mean, I don't know that, that you know it or any of us know it, but, but your, your speculation, the concern Always, regardless of which side, on the hearings is, um, okay, a, a judge, is, a justice is going to be appointed by a certain president and, you know, related to a certain party. There's the concern that the court is becoming more of a political institution, and yet you've noted uh, various cases, in, including Kagan, where maybe on each – on particular cases, the voting doesn't always – Come out the way we might have expected it based on history or, or concerns during hearings, et cetera. Is it justices looking more specifically at particular cases? So we can't really predict those types of things. It's case by case. Is it justices wanting, as you noted, maybe to, you know, dilute the politicization just a bit? What, what, what drives, um, some of that decision making in your opinion?
0: So there are always two basic theories about why justices act as they do. Uh, there's the platonic ideal of the judge who uh, simply applies the law to the facts before him or her and comes up with a conclusion. And I think that platonic ideal exists in some cases, uh typically ones without political salience, uh, interpretation of statutes in bankruptcy or patent or pension plan cases where There is no real political uh, valence. There's a desire to get the law right. And in those cases, the judges will exercise, the justices will exercise uh, their independent legal judgment and come up with the right answer and will array themselves in ways that don't reflect the parties of their appointing presidents. In the bigger cases, for the most part, uh, we see them arrayed in the usual ways, Uh, but not always. And there are uh, cases where, say, The question is, should they overrule a precedent? And there you have two kinds of things going on. A liberal justice may well want to overrule the given precedent, but doesn't want to make it easy for the court to overrule precedents in other cases. So you may have conflicting things going on in that way. And uh, I I mean, the bottom line is, I think the justices uh, understand themselves to be acting in, in good faith as judges and not politicians but they bring with themselves uh, some intuitions in difficult constitutional cases where there are no, no clear markers of exactly what the law requires. And at the margins, they are going to follow those intuitions because there's nothing better for them to do because the law doesn't provide a clear answer. Lower courts have been divided. The cases are hard and you know, overall, uh, You can tell quite a bit about how a justice is going to vote by whether they were appointed by a Republican president or a Democratic president. And that's not a controversial question, really, because why would we have these huge confirmation fights unless presidents and the Senate thought that the votes mattered?
1: How worried were you? after the Kavanaugh hearings and you talked a little bit about the, the, the results, you know, how worried are you now after the first uh, session with Kavanaugh and by worried? I mean the partisanship, the anger, the fighting, uh, th- that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. So justice Kavanaugh had one very bad day during his uh, Senate confirmation hearings when he returned to face the allegations of uh, sexual misconduct and said some things that I suspect he regrets uh, about a left-wing conspiracy and revenge of the Clintons and so far. And he really did not display on that day uh, a sound judicial temperament. And there was some reason to be concerned he would bring that with him to the bench. I haven't seen it. Um, His reputation on the Federal Appeals Court in Washington was excellent. Uh, His work on the Supreme Court in writing and on the bench has been measured and cautious. Uh, I think he means to present himself to the world as a uh, thoughtful, uh, disinterested justice. He is for sure a conservative. Uh, But what we saw in his first term was not in keeping with that bad day during his confirmation hearings and more in keeping with his more than a decade on the D.C. Circuit, where he was a widely respected judge.
1: So with that, I, I want to shift a little bit and, and it's in keeping with what the concerns were um, I think for many uh during the Kavanaugh hearings and, and during you know what we all saw happen within Congress and and outside of Congress. And and that's how the court is holding up as an institution. Um, you know that many of the institutions that stabilize our democracy, from the judicial system to federal agencies to the media, even uh, it turns out, I guess, to the way we celebrate July 4th, um, are under attack. Um, in the last years, we've had uh, the Supreme Court seat that you uh, referenced earlier that Democrats uh, feel was stolen. Um, Trump openly attacks uh, his so-called unfair judges and uh, any seemingly decision that goes against him. Um, uh, last November, you've written about this a, a, a great deal. Um, Chief Justice Roberts um, took perhaps the unprecedented step of directly and publicly rebutting a sitting president, um, the famous we don't have Obama judges or Trump judges or Bush judges or Clinton judges. And now in the wake of the court's census decision, um, Trump and Attorney General Barr are actively searching for ways to do, in, in my words, an end run around the court's recent um, decision. How is the court holding up? How much can it take, and how would you characterize its legitimacy?
0: Um, I think the court's in decent shape. I think it's uh more respected than the other branches of government and uh and I think the Chief Justice's efforts to keep it on track, including by responding to President trump, uh, were largely successful. I, I wouldn't go so far as you would, Chris, to say it's it's unprecedented. It really depends on what you mean. President Obama criticized the justices to their faces after the Citizens United decision, but but I don't think Obama and other presidents have suggested that uh, decisions with which they disagreed were the product of politics, were the product of Obama judges and Clinton judges. So I do think Trump, uh, in this way, as in so many ways. Uh, is not only criticizing people for the substance of their decisions, but also calling into question their good faith uh, and undermining some of the pillars of our civil society, the press, the judiciary, and so on. So in that respect, I think it's different. Um, As far as whether uh, there's an end run around the census decision, I don't know that we've seen that yet. I think what we're hearing from Attorney General Barr is that he thinks that the... Census decision did leave open the opportunity to come back to the courts with a different rationale for adding the citizenship question to the census. And that's true so far as it goes. Um, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion did contemplate uh, the possibility that they could come up with a non pretextual, non contrived reason for it. Uh, <laughs> you would think if they had one, they might have come forward with it by now. Uh, but I I expect the next step will be for them to come back to court and say, hey, we have a new reason. Is it okay or not? And more likely than not, uh, that reason will be rejected by the courts, including the Supreme Court. And then we face the moment of truth of will the administration uh, follow what the Supreme Court tells it to do. And I, of course, expect it to do that. Um, That that is a, a deeply ingrained norm of American the American constitutional order that the Supreme court has the last word on such things.
1: Is it too far to say that you see perhaps a pushing up against of the norms, at least as far as the Supreme court is concerned, but your expectation based on what you've seen and and your analysis is you, you wouldn't expect to see a a full on disregarding of those norms.
0: If we actually saw the president uh, disobeying, a direct command from the Supreme Court, then we would finally be in, and people throw this phrase around too lightly, but, uh, but then we would be in a constitutional crisis.
1: The other issue around uh, the census question seems to be the arguments that had been made uh by the government i believe that w- this really needed to be decided by the end of june for anything to be able to be done vis-a-vis the census itself that that end of june was was really i think a pretty hard deadline and now with the you know continued efforts it seems at the end of june you know we can go into july and who knows maybe you know maybe a little bit beyond that D- does that aspect of the, and we know that the, the, the government lawyers are, have now, uh, are now perhaps in the process of being switched. Um, does, does that component of it raise questions to you or maybe questions, but, but not anything beyond just questions?
0: No, I think the government's in a very tough spot. They said adamantly that this needed to be decided uh, by the end of June because that was the deadline for printing the forms. The Supreme Court took the case for that reason, Ordinarily, the court would have an appeals court uh, first uh, decide the question before it took an appeal, but it didn't. It allowed the Trump administration to leapfrog the federal appeals court in New York, go straight from a trial judge to the Supreme Court on the understanding, on the basis of this supposed June 30 deadline. So it's very hard for the government to come back and say, never mind. Now, it's true that the challengers, the ACLU, the state of New York and others said, no, June 30 is not the real deadline. With additional congressional appropriations, you might be able to go as late as October. So I might expect the government to say, there is that other deadline. But then you would think they'd have to obtain appropriations. And one thing I can tell you for sure is that the democratically controlled House of Representatives is not going to appropriate money for this purpose. So they really seem to be jammed up on this thing. And the Justice Department and particularly the elite unit of the Justice Department that represents uh, the government in the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General's office, would burn a ton of credibility mm. if it went back to the court and said, "You remember what we told you about June? Never mind."
1: A last question about the state of the court, the role of the court, the institution. It's it's and it's kind of our role. Its role in in our democracy at this. Um, you know, challenging period where, where democracy and little aspects of liberal democracy are being questioned in, in, in so many ways. I heard a point made the other day that, that rang true to me. I'd love your take. Um, it feels like a higher percentage of highly impactful decisions, ones that kind of go to the heart of our democracy have been narrow, five to four votes the gerrymandering decision the um, citizens United five to four um, Shelby County v holder um, which basically wiped out states and local government requirements to obtain local uh, federal preclearance before Im- implementing any changes to their voting laws or practices that was five four um, and the argument was that you know it used to be that the major decisions were not five four not 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 all of them but but a, a you know a greater percentage of them in here you know they, they were Pointing to Brown v. Board of Education and maybe Loving versus Virginia or Gideon v. Wainwright, which was the right to attorney, or even U.S. v. Nixon, um, uh, eight to eight to zero. Do do you agree? There's a trend. Is this something that you know rents any space in your mind around the narrowness of decisions on highly impactful issues? And I'm going to ask you about the upcoming session, the next session in, in a moment. But is this Something that you worry about, or or it's perhaps overblown in your mind.
0: No, I think the point is sound. Uh, it it used to be, and U.S. v. Nixon is a great example. So that's a case where the court unanimously orders President Nixon to disclose uh, Oval Office tapes. You know that's a that's a bold move, and it's unanimous. It's eight justices, three of them Nixon appointees. I think if a similar case had gotten to the court in the Mueller context. I think it's more likely than not that Trump would have lost, but he wouldn't have lost unanimously. Mm. And I you know, the the ability for the court and Brown is a great, great example of this to present a united front to the nation and say this is what the law requires. Not what five justices think is right, but this is what the law requires unanimously is a great um, look for the Supreme Court. And as you say, and I think you're right, uh, almost all. Almost all of the recent blockbuster decisions that go to the heart of our democracy and also that, you know, in a liberal direction, uh, you know, establish, say, a right to same sex marriage uh, were five, four decisions. And they would be much more easily accepted and it would be better for the court if they were lopsided
1: or unanimous. But that may not happen uh, tomorrow, and <laughs> that may not happen perhaps in, in the next session, um, which which I, I want to ask you about. Because it, as compelling as this session was, um, it felt more like one of the prelude or build-up seasons of Game of Thrones. I, I don't know if you watched that, but very, various shifts and battles that set the stage yeah. for the big winter to come. Um, and, and after all, starting this October, we have um, election year decisions on immigration, Second Amendment, discrimination against gay and transgender workers, and possibly abortion, as well as a case that's going on in New Orleans around health care and the Affordable Care Act. Do you see it that way? Would you expect the court's big upcoming season to be more substantive and impactful, perhaps, than the disappointing last season of Game of Thrones?
0: Yeah, I think that the last term, call it the last season, uh, was that the court tried pretty hard to stay out of the spotlight. It didn't want to take big cases. As we were talking about, it only took the census case because it thought it really had to. Mm. Maybe it didn't have to, but it thought it really had to. It only took the gerrymandering cases because there are some of the rare cases where the court uh, does not have the discretion to turn down appeals, but must take them. So the two biggest cases of the term were cases that the court would rather have avoided but had no choice. next term, as you say, Chris, we got a ton of big cases. They're likely to land in June right in the middle of the election season. And um, are they likely to be five four? Uh, DACA uh, on uh, whether the president can rescind an Obama program to protect uh, young immigrants from deportation? If I had to guess that 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 looks like it could be a, a five four win for the administration. The cases on whether a federal civil rights law protects gay and transgender workers, that's just the kind of case where the conservatives are likely to read the statute differently from the liberals. So that could be a 5-4. The Second Amendment case, uh, New York City has changed uh, the law at issue, and maybe that goes away. But I think you're right, Chris, that they're likely to take a case from uh, Louisiana on abortion, on a restrictive Louisiana abortion law that can drive the number of abortion clinics in that state down to one. So we're likely to see a very big term and a term that will probably over and over again have the same kind of stereotypical 5-4 divisions.
1: And lastly, Adam, you you might have noticed – um, we're at the beginning of a presidential election cycle. You know, I, I know you spend a you know all your time on the Supreme Court, so you, you might have missed the fact that we're, <laughs> you know, that a campaign is starting up. W- what do you think of the various ideas, ideas on the Democratic side to redesign or even? Pack the court. I don't know if it's if it's exactly pat uh, court packing. If the Democrats take control of Congress and the White House, I mean, for example, it's just one example. uh, Pete Buttigieg has floated the idea to expand the court from nine to fifteen judges, with a plan to, you know, I guess five Democrats, five Republicans, five unaffiliated. You know, maybe that exact plan. You know, in in all likelihood, not. But but the idea of Rethinking the makeup of the Supreme Court um, is not infrequently mentioned now on the campaign trail do you Do you give that any thought is that just campaign talk or does it give you any concern maybe concerns too strong of a word around are we starting to uh, you know heighten the politicization of the court
0: um Well, listen, it's true that the Constitution doesn't set the number of justices. And it's true that over the history of the nation, the size of the Supreme Court has gone up and down, although not since the Civil War or just after. Um, I would be worried about uh, changing the number of justices because it would give rise to a kind of tit for tat that would be bad for the court, bad for the nation. Now, I understand how angry Democrats are and how Merrick Garland was treated. He didn't, you know, president Obama's nominee for justice Scalia's seat, uh, who wasn't even granted a hearing. And that, uh, did violate some powerful norms. And I can understand that there's, uh, an impulse, uh, for a sort of revenge, but it's also the kind of thing that can easily spiral out of control. Um, and if the, Supreme Court becomes even more of a kind of political football than it already is with these very contentious confirmation hearings Uh, that can't be good for uh, the basic function of the court. So my thoughts are tentative. I don't want to express any kind of real opinion on it, Uh, but I would I would I would think people want to be very cautious about uh, unsettling. Uh, something as fundamental as a long-established uh, s- size of the Supreme Court.
1: Is this the most fascinating, interesting time in your lifetime to be covering the Supreme Court, or is it always that way, just uh, just different?
0: Um, well, the court was quite stable, really, from 2006 when Alito replaced O'Connor. Uh, we had a lot of changes of personnel, but it was they were they were like liberal for liberal swaps, conservative for conservative swaps. Now that we have uh, Kavanaugh, a conservative, replacing Kennedy, a centrist, you do have a court that is really in profound transition and happening against the backdrop of this really unconventional Trump administration. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've covered the court for 11 years, not, not forever, but certainly in my time, there's been no more interesting time to cover the court.
1: Adam, thank you. Thank you for your time. And I, I hope that the census thing gets resolved sooner rather than later so that your <laughs> summer vacation can start for you. Yeah, I appreciate that, Chris. Very good to be with you. That was my conversation with Adam Liptak. My thanks to Adam and you for listening quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on iTunes. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.